Hey there, friends. It's Eddie, host of The New Activist. You are listening or about to listen to a re-released episode from season one, our first season, obviously. That's why we named it one of The New Activist. We are putting these out as we are preparing for season three, which will be awesome. I'm excited for you to hear it. As a quick reminder, if you would please go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM and fill out that form. It is not a, you don't need to give money or anything, just fill out this form. It will send a letter to elected officials and it will be very helpful, not only in the work of IJM, but also in supporting this podcast. Thanks for doing that. Enjoy this episode. Before we get started, it is important for you to know that there is going to be some really heavy content in this episode. So if there happen to be kids listening to this, uh, this would not be a podcast that is appropriate for their little ears. And if abuse, particularly sexual abuse, is a particular trigger for you, we totally understand if you tap out and look forward to seeing you next week. This is The New Activist. Well, this is indeed The New Activist, episode 011, with our special guest, Lucille DeHito. Lucille's going to introduce herself in a moment. She did a much better job of it, so I'm just going to ask her to do it. I will say, though, this is sort of a different episode. Um, a lot of it's the same. It's a little bit different in that this is, uh, this is an episode really focused around the work of IJM. And as you may have noticed in this show, it's a show presented by IJM, but a lot of the people that we've heard from have little to no direct connection with IJM, because really this is about having broader conversations about what's happening in the world of activism and how we can take our next steps in our own activism journey. However, all of us who create this show work for IJM, and we work for IJM because at some point, like Sarah Groves said way back in September, our, our bell was rung by this particular work of justice. And there is something happening in the world of IJM and some work that we are engaging in that I just really need you to hear about. And it is important enough to commandeer an entire episode and bring you into this work. I'm also going to repeat what I said at the beginning, that this is going to be a heavy episode. But as the producer of this show... I have a responsibility to think about the full scope of the conversation, not only that we're having on a week-to-week basis, but also having overall as a, as a podcast. And part of what we're going to do is think, be real heady and in the clouds. We're going to think of theory and theology of what activism is, but part of it is we're going to zoom in, zoom way in, and we're going to talk to people that are practitioners. Um, Lucille is one of those people, and the work that she is doing is, I guess, nothing short of heroic. 
actually, more accurately, I should say, the the work that that her team is doing, but also the work that is being done by the local authorities is nothing short of heroic. In fact, she says many times throughout the interview, you know, we did this, we did that. She's not talking about her and IJM and her team. She's talking about the entire group of people who are working together to end slavery. She's affirming the work of the local authorities. It's pretty awesome, actually. Well, here's the interview. Pretty much unedited with Lucille Tejito. Could you introduce yourself? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, yeah, I am Lucille Tejito. Uh, uh, I am from the small island of Cebu. I work as an attorney at International Justice Mission, and I am currently the director of legal here in the field office, the IJM field office here in Cebu. And I've been here since I was born and I grew up in Cebu. And I went to school here and I've never been, I've never lived outside Cebu actually. So this is just really my home and my family is also here. My community, my church, everything close to my heart is in Cebu. And most especially my work too, uh, my work in this mission. Can you tell me more about what your your job looks like on a maybe on a day to day level? What what is it that you do? Unpack it for me a bit. Yeah, sure. So I manage and lead a team of four lawyers. Um, these lawyers, our department um, actually act as a private prosecutor in um, prosecuting trafficking cases, especially involving um, victims of online sexual exploitation of children, which we commonly know as cyber sex trafficking. So on a daily basis, um, our lawyers would go to hearings and uh, represent our clients in court. Can you explain to me what cyber sex trafficking is? Yeah, um, sure. Um, I think the best way to explain cyber sex trafficking is to describe it, especially in the context of where, in the, in the context of, you know, the area that we work in here in Cebu. Um, the abuse happened, just imagine this, um, the abuse happens in the, inside the private homes. So unlike um, commercial sex trafficking that you drive down the street, you would see the name of the bar and you could already think that some um, sex trafficking is happening there. And um, with cyber sex trafficking, this happens in communities, small communities, um, inside the houses. And the perpetrators usually are parents, aunts, relatives, or neighbors. And the victims are really young children. Um, the youngest that we have res that we have supported um, rescue of was a three-month-old baby. Oh. Can you imagine that? And um, what happens is that inside a very small, in a corner of a um, house, you have a computer. It could be a laptop. It could be a desktop, or it could be a mobile phone that is able to have access to internet. Um, internet here in the Philippines, um, we use, sometimes they just use um, 
um, pocket Wi-Fi or data from the phone. They don't have some use would use broadband as long as there's internet and, and you're able to um, capture there's a camera through phone webcam whatever you have and um, you just there's a usually there is a customer usually who is all overseas usually a foreigner that would ask for a show it could be a live streaming show it could be um, asked nude photos of children and the, and then the local perpetrator here, usually the parents, neighbor or relatives, have ready access to these children because of that relationship, right? So anytime they could just get the children in front of the camera and let the children do whatever the customer would ask them to do. They could be posing naked. They could be doing sexually explicit activities on a live streaming show. How how could that how could the parents or aunts or family members a- allow that i i don't even know how to ask the question do you know what i'm asking like how how right. this, what how does this happen sorry can you just answer it i know you know what i'm asking i'm sorry yeah exactly um when uh, that question is we keep on asking that question um every time we do an operation and we know that the perpetrator, we've seen the abuse and we know that it was the parent who's asking the children to do these um, um, sex activities. And we ask the same question, why, how could a mother do this um, kind of um, really painful and just um, ugly kind of exploitation to her own children? And even... Um, our partners ask the same question and I can't even wrap my head around it. And when we interview victims, they would say because they need money for food, they need money for school, they need money to sustain their, their you know, the needs of the family. But there are also, it seems like at the tip of the iceberg, it seems like the reason is economic poverty. But there are also, um, you know, um, Philippines is... Uh, um, the poverty in the Philippines is, you see it everywhere, but there are poor families who, you know, work so hard and can't even afford to put um, food on the table three times a day for their children, but they don't resort to this kind of abuse. But the nature of how you get money from cyber sex trafficking, money, you earn money so fast. You earn a big uh, amount of money so fast, you just... How many minutes of show? I'm thinking if it is just, if the root of this is economic poverty, these perpetrators are doing this to their children. And we're thinking, we're like trying to wrap our heads around it, but we think that it is not the root cause. The root cause is just greed, but then it is also, it makes them rationalize the greed. The economic poverty that they call is, is just being used to rationalize that feels very um i that answer feels unsatisfying does it feel unsatisfying to you like just that greed would get uh, like economic poverty and then greed would cause a parent to be able to exploit their child in this way it is unsatisfying but you know we cannot just say that it's i would say that that greed um is so rooted 
that is the more of the underlying factor um, why they are doing that for their children. And another thing is, if you are in an environment where the community is also doing it, it seems just it's a cottage industry. Everybody's doing it. Um, um, if there is no form of deterrence, they're just you know um, a community where all the neighbor, all your neighbors are doing it. It's just a normal part of the day. It's just a normal part of of them, like part of their uh, means of living. And the children are also there. They grew up that it's just doing a show before a camera. It's also part of their growing up. It seems normal unless somebody would penetrate in the community and make them see that that is not right. Make them make the children see and make the children uh, make the children see and make the ch- uh, the community see that should be stopped. Um, we have a perpetrator where she was introduced into cyber sex trafficking when she was still a uh, probably uh, when she was still a minor and she grew up in that because there was no intervention she evolved into a perpetrator herself and that pattern is just um ongoing unless there is intervention and there's unless there is rescue because she's living in a community where everybody is doing it and she grew up in a community that that was just their normal thing to do. I think people listening to this have maybe heard some of this just for the very first time, and they're completely shaken. And they like you haven't even gotten into a specific story yet, and it's really, really scary to hear what you're saying. Um, how are you? How do you? How do you live? How do you do this? How are you able to be exposed to this kind of just unspeakable injustice and go home and wake up the next day? Um, it is hard. Um, the first, my first exposure to um, cyber sex trafficking in, you know, in the performance of my work, we are seeing evil face to face. Um, as we prosecute these cases, we so we see the the photos of abuse, and we cannot just close our eyes because we are presenting these materials in court, right? And we are studying them, um, and the bulk of very graphic materials that we see is just um, a lot. Um, it would be easy there might be a tendency for us to get used to it and numb our hearts. But I think um, we shouldn't numb our hearts um, because it is even better for our hearts to continue to break as we see this abuse, as we support the police when they do um, engagement with a perpetrator, when they see um, face-to-face um, the abuse that they that the perpetrator do to these children, all the more that we refuse to numb our hearts because um, these children need rescue and these um, perpetrators ha- they have to be arrested. The exploitation have to stop. So, what happens to these kids? Because as you're doing your work more effectively, the cycle is being 
broken, right? So police and investigators are getting better and better at finding where the, the crime is happening. Your team is prosecuting and making arrests, which means that in theory, parents and aunts and uncles are, are going to jail. So what happens to these kids who, while they are out of this abusive situation are now effectively orphans? Um, what, where do they go? The kids, when the kids are rescued, they go to a government shelter or a shelter, um, a private shelter that is accredited by the government. But, you know, children as young as six years old, um, six, seven, three, under 12 years old, our aftercare specialists really see that it's not a good environment or it's not a good way for these children who are still in their formative years who need to grow up um, in an environment where there's, you know, a family, a family figure. It's not helping for them to grow up in a shelter. Um, so right now, we've, I really, we really have um, identified um, the need for shelters and aftercare providers who can um, really provide that intervention and aftercare service because reintegrating them, like you said, you know, the parents are in jail and reintegrating them to the community where we, we do not, most of the time, we do not see it healthy for them to be reintegrated in the community where the community is also complicit to the abuse. Because like I've said, even neighbors who have access to them would have them perform um, cyber sex shows, right? So we are um, we are really torn between do we release them back to their next of kin, like their grandmothers, you right, know? Right, 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 right. Uh, these exactly. children are different from the children who have been like physically abused because um, this these children rescued from cyber sex, you know, they are highly sexualized, so they need a special care um, to provide um, the needed intervention because of the nature of abuse that has been, um, that they have been um, subjected to. Right, right. That is nuts. Um, How long do you think you're going to be able to do this work? I don't know, but as long as, um, as long as there's something I can do for the work, then I will continue working in this mission. whether in IJM, whether in my capacity as a lawyer, whether in my capacity as a member of a community, whether in my capacity as a member of a church, in my family, among my friends. Um, I think my passion goes beyond just my role in this organic, in IJM, goes beyond my profession as a lawyer. I think wherever I go, whatever I can do, um for the work i would do so yeah like you said um whenever we we support the the police officers and the social the government social workers in doing these rescues we come face to face with evil and it's it and and the the road to rescuing them is not easy it's not as romanticized as other people would imagine the work in the field, in the trenches, is messy. Sometimes 
you go on a rescue and the kids are not there, or you go on an operation and there's a tip-off, you go on an operation and um, the perpetrator is not engaging us online, you you do, um, the operation we take, we, we'll do like multiple tries, and it could either discourage you and say, is this still working? Or it could either fuel the fire in you to never stop until you find these children, until you rescue these children. It could go either way. And I would really encourage all of us and even those who are listening that even you, if you encounter um, what is seemingly um, failures in your work, what should encourage you is who are you serving? Who are you trying to rescue? Who are you trying to help? That is a bigger encouragement that would, that small failure will just vanish in the face of that motivation. Hmm. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. I am in, abounding in hope. Um, because even if Saving the world is a huge, is a big job. And sometimes you would, you know, um, you would see that the enormity of the work is just overwhelming. But I am abounding in hope because we have seen great stories of rescue. And we have seen those rescued children are now starting to, you know, see the life of a child starting to move on a life free from exploitation. And I see so much hope can be brought to the children who are yet to be rescued. Indeed. People hearing this in the United States, I think, are, are going to want to help. And they're going to want to help right now. One of the things that we're asking people to do is to share this Super Marco video. And I'm going to talk about it at the end of the podcast. Do you think that people in the U.S. sharing something like that is actually helpful? <laughs> I would say that it is actually helpful because um, if we wanted to help, you know, we know that what we do would be impactful if we start within our circle of influence. Whether you're a student, what's your circle of influence? Whether you are um, an entrepreneur or a lawyer or a doctor, start within your circle of influence. And what do we bring with to that circle of influ influence? The story, a powerful story that would fuel the fire in the hearts of the people within our, our circle of influence to do something. Um, there is no limit as to what you can do for the world, but start sharing the story. Start breaking the hearts of people um, to fuel them into action. If you see the story of Marco, Marco is just a representative of the many stories of children who are being subjected to cyber sex trafficking. It is a combination of all these um, stories of these children. And Marco is a, the story of Marco is a representative of all of that. Start sharing the story and start breaking the hearts of people so that they would see um, that even if you're continents away from the Philippines, that you would see and do something about um, the work here and just 
putting an end and putting a stop in the exploitation that has been happening to the children here. Some of them are still faceless. Some of them are still without a name. But if you start sharing the story of unnamed and unnamed children and children without faces and children with silent cries because they have not been discovered yet, because rescue has not come to them yet, share this story and that would really be a big help. Um, the, the impact of, of your support will be exponential. Okay, then, let's do that together. Uh, I know in light of everything we've heard, there are questions and there are uh, probably questions on top of questions and there's conversation waiting to be had. So that you know, I'm fully available on Facebook, Twitter, New Activist is, both of them. Uh, I'm fully available there. If you want to talk, flesh this out together, ask more questions about IJM, let's do that. Uh, I know that this probably will take a little bit to sink in, but let's definitely talk about it. But for now, here's what we can do. We can share a video, and it's a very good film. It's called Super Marco. It is on IJM's Facebook page, and we can share it. We can endorse it. We can say that this work matters. And I'm telling you, there are enough people listening to this podcast that if we as a podcast committed to sharing this, like a lot, a lot of people would know maybe for the very first time that there are slaves in the world and that this is not okay and that this is going to end on our watch. I'm going to give you links to all that inside everywhere that you read about this show, whether it's the episode page or inside of the iTunes description, wherever it is, there's a link, there's a direct link to the video. I would love for you to go to that link and share it. And if you do share it, let me know. I there's no, it's not like a contest, but I would like to high five you. The music for today's show was composed by Ether. You can hear more of his artistry at soundcloud.com forward slash Ether. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as Lucille Dejito, I am Eddie Koffoltz. Take care, friends.